audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Our series is entitled The Son of God, Understanding the Gospel of John, Part 1. We're getting as much background information as we can about this amazing Gospel of John so that we can get the most out of our verse-by-verse commentary. It's a wonderful, wonderful Gospel, much beloved because the Apostle himself was much beloved. And not only was he loved much, he loved a lot in return. So we know that the man who God used to write this gospel, he's John the beloved disciple, also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation. We also know that the reason he wrote the gospel of John was more than just to tell the story of the life of Jesus. No, as we learn in John 20 and verse 31, this gospel was written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ or Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We know that John is doing everything in his power to persuade us both of the Messiahship of Jesus, that he is, in other words, Messiahship, meaning the anointed one, is that he is the son of David who will sit on David's throne forever. So he is the very person God had promised his people that would come and rule over them. Obviously, not so much in this world, but in the world to come. And make no mistake about it, friends, there is a new world coming, and it will absolutely overwrite the world that we now have. I'm not talking about planet Earth. I'm talking about the world system, the oikumeni, that is in the Greek, the system or the cosmos that we've been under for the last while. How does John prove that Jesus is the Messiah? We've learned he proved it through seven miracles, seven I am statements, seven discourses or teachings, and five witnesses, namely John the Baptist, the miracles, the Heavenly Father, the scriptures, and Moses himself. We've also looked at the portraits of Christ in John, and there are so many. Amazing. That's another case for proving that Jesus is both Son of David and Son of God. And we've also looked at key verses in John 1, verses 1 and 13, John 20, 28 to 31, and, of course, the unforgettable John three sixteen. Let us continue our journey as we look and feel and listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying in regard to the introduction to the book of John. John's Gospel was probably the last Gospel to be written of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't know the exact date because there are no dates put on these. It has to do with other external evidences, particularly that which the early church fathers attest. But we think that the Gospel of John may have been written near the end or close to the end of the first century A.D. That means if it was the case... There was no longer a temple in Jerusalem. Indeed, there was no Jerusalem at all. It had been destroyed thoroughly by the Roman 10th Legion in AD 70. It also meant that John himself wasn't living in Jerusalem anymore. He was living in Ephesus, where he may have taken Jesus' mother Mary to spend the last years of her life. And again, tradition, 
we don't know for sure, but if you go to Ephesus, you will find there the tomb of John, and it's a rather dramatic-looking place, or shall we say it's a square, with some pillars round about it, and just simply states this is his tomb. Whether it is or not, all I can say is tradition. And then what we'll focus on, unlike Matthew and Luke, there is no reference to Jesus' birth in the Gospel of John or any stories of his early life. Instead, it starts off immediately with the ministry of John the Baptist. And let's remember that basically the last half of John's Gospel is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. I want to now focus on some of the distinctive features found in the Gospel of John. That's why when we go through the Gospel, having been introduced to these features, we will recognize them and, I believe, get more value out of our study. All right, so John wonderfully summarizes the case for Jesus Christ, because, as I said, he's got seven signs, seven I am statements, seven discourses, and five witnesses. All good so far. But there is more. What else will we learn? First of all, we learn about the deity of Jesus. And it's found in the very beginning of John's Gospel, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As I've commented earlier, John chapter 1 sounds very similar to Genesis chapter 1. Amazing. And then... The second distinction, we meet a man who is what we call a secret disciple of Jesus, and he's called Nicodemus. He belonged to the council, the Sanhedrin, but unlike many in the Sanhedrin who rejected Jesus, Nicodemus recognized him for who he is, or at least recognized that he was a man sent by God. He may or may not have recognized his messiahship at that point, but he certainly recognized him as legitimate. And there was a divine appointment between Nicodemus and Jesus. It happened at night, and we read about it, of course, in the third chapter of John's Gospel, the meeting with Nicodemus. And in this meeting, Jesus speaks about the wonders of the new birth or being born again. And basically, this is the first time we've ever heard of this doctrine. It's coming from Jesus to Nicodemus, but will be shared with the whole world. And essentially, if you want the benefit that Christ gives, or shall I say benefits, because there are multiple, you have to be born again. Do you want him as Savior to take away your sin? You have to be born again. Do you want to be forgiven of all sin? Again, the new birth applies. Do you want to have the gift of eternal life and see the wonderful things of the kingdom of God as well as enter into those things? Then the same applies. You have to be born again. Of course, Nicodemus was absolutely perplexed when he heard about the new birth. Initially, he thought that somehow he has to re-enter his mother's womb and come out again. No, Jesus wasn't speaking about the physical rebirth. He's speaking about a spiritual rebirth. The inner man is what's reborn. Although our outward person, our our bodies, will be, of course, glorified at the resurrection. So these are incredibly important doctrines that Jesus is going to bring up, not only in John 3 with the new birth, but other doctrines too in his subsequent discourses. Then there's the conflict, number three of faith 
and unbelief, as I spoke about in the earlier lessons. While many people came to believe in Jesus as the Christ, for the reasons we've mentioned here, he has great discourses, he has miracles, he has authority that is unmistakably from God himself. Many believed, but there were many who resisted, who rejected his claims, who doubted. And this is, of course, throughout this gospel, particularly in the Jerusalem area, which is not just a religious city, but a religious stronghold. So this opposition to Jesus, the more he did God's work, the more he was opposed, and oftentimes, paradoxically, by the religious establishment elite. In theory, these leaders should have been the first to recognize Jesus for who he is. But on the contrary, due to blindness, due to their pride, their hypocrisy, their double dealing, in other words, they tried to appear righteous on the outside, but they were pretty much iniquitous on the inside. And when the light of Jesus, who is the light of the world, began to shine in their circumstances, they didn't like it. And so they opposed him. Whatever the case may be, and all the above may apply, the religious establishment elite, for the most part, rejected Jesus, and indeed, they betrayed him to death, handing him over the Romans for crucifixion. There were exceptions, and Nicodemus was one of them. So you have the conflict of faith and unbelief, which seems much more pronounced in John's Gospel than in other places. Now, you, of course, have the same thing in the book of Acts. The more the gospel spread throughout the ancient world, the more the opposition increased, because this is what the Lord teaches. Whatever the world has done to him, they will also do to his church. And that has been borne out through both the the book of Acts, the rest of the New Testament, and even church history. We have a fourth distinctive It talks about what I call the long goodbye. Jesus begins his farewell in John chapter 12 and verse 36, and he continues his farewell from John 12, 36, all the way to chapter 17, virtually to the end of the chapter. So you have almost six chapters of the long goodbye because, well, Jesus has to debrief his apostles, his disciples, what is going to happen after he is taken up into heaven, the job they have to do, the fact that God will send the Holy Spirit. In other words, when Jesus goes up to heaven from earth, the Holy Spirit will come from heaven down to earth. It's almost like the great swap. And Jesus does teach that it is a good thing the Holy Spirit is coming to his disciples and, of course, to his church, because the church, empowered by the Spirit, will do even mightier things than what Jesus did himself, because after all, there was only one Jesus with 24 hours to his day, and yet you have a growing body of believers multiply the anointing on them and the works they do, and yes, it would be exponentially more than what Jesus did. And as we see in the book of Acts, many of the miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospels are repeated by the apostles, and we still believe God can do such miracles today. He doesn't change. His will is immutable, and his nature is, yeah, it's always the same. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever, as Hebrews 13, verse 8 tells us. 
So we have the long goodbye. That's the fourth distinctive. In John 17, we have what is called the fifth distinctive. Jesus Christ is the great intercessor. We know that he is the king that is coming back. We know he is like a prophet as Moses, but we also need to know he is a great high priest, not after the Levitical priesthood, but something even higher. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we read a very good explanation of the value and benefits of Melchizedek's priestly lineage in the epistle to the Hebrews. The thing about being a high priest, it's not just a ceremonial position. There is work to be done. Not so much that Jesus will be like the high priest in the Old Testament and even in the Gospels that were offering bulls and goats and other things as sacrifices for the sins of the people. No, Jesus himself is the one perfect, once and for all, sacrifice. So basically, what does Jesus do if he's not sacrificing bulls and goats? He is interceding for his people. He is, in fact, a great high priest who is continually praying for us. Fear not, friends. When you come to Jesus and you've been born again, you are on his prayer list. He is interceding for you. And in fact, it tells us in Hebrews 7, and I believe it's verse 25, that he is able to save us to the uttermost who come unto God by him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He is the great high priest. Praise God for that. And then we have, of course, the passion of Jesus, which is told in great detail, because John The apostle was an eyewitness to many of these events. In fact, this author of the Gospel of John was personally present at the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, that would have been utterly unforgettable. In fact, for Jesus' followers, his crucifixion was like the end, not just of his ministry, but it was like the end of the world. They were looking to him as the promised Messiah, meaning he is the son of David who will sit on David's throne and rule the world with a rod of iron, as the second psalm says. But instead of doing any of that, he is betrayed and crucified by the very people he had come to save. It was like the end of the world, until three days later they went to the tomb and it was empty. The stone had been rolled away. Jesus had risen indeed. So John is a witness to all of this. That's why we are so grateful for the priceless gift of the Gospel of John, as well as the epistles, as well as Revelation, because especially in the Gospel, it comes from somebody who was not just familiar with the events, but had an up-close and personal relationship with Jesus. After all, he was one of the inner core of disciples. So we learn about the passion of Christ because of John's gospel, in with detail, I should say, that we find nowhere else. And then, the resurrection of Jesus. It is possible that we have, in John's gospel, the most comprehensive account of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ, which, of course, were foreordained by the Heavenly Father. It is important that we understand that people gave their lives for the veracity or truthfulness that Jesus rose from the dead. What is the point of preaching the gospel if Christ didn't really rise? And what's worse is, what would it be like preaching a lie and starting a worldwide movement? It is possible, friends, of course. Deception is part and parcel of this fallen world. And a lie 
can be institutionalized and be believed, but of course it ends in futility and degeneration and all kinds of terrible things. Now, we know in John's Gospel that Jesus rose from the dead because there were witnesses, and John was one of them, that the same Jesus who died on the cross was alive forevermore. And they risked and gave their lives for that truth. John is probably the only one of the 12 apostles who didn't die a martyr's death, although it wasn't for lack of trying by the enemies of the church. So these are a few of the distinctives we've learned so far, but there is more. And so we will continue this introduction in the very next lesson. taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.